What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and the crew today is Gabby Magnuson. Hi. Jake Dello. What's up? Pete McKenzie. Hey, yeah. And Alex Ote. Hey, yo. So, two quick hits before we get into it. One, Taylor Fravel, the MIT professor, China Hand, uh, flagged this down for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known about it. So, shout out to him. But CSIS, the big shit think tank, they did a comparison polling, which is worth sort of uh, paying attention to or making it a discussion point, at least, that looked at the question or the statement, most Americans are prepared to take considerable risk to defend U.S. allies and partners against military threats from China. They looked at opinions from thought leaders, so like pundits, experts, subject matter experts, versus the general American public. There's a there's a, like an infographic that shows this, and it's so stark. The view that the American public has on like whether America should take risks to defend allies and partners against China it's pretty similar across countries. So are we talking about Japan? Are we talking about Taiwan? Are we talking about Australia, Korea, right? The American public is sort of even keeled about all of them, even on Taiwan, but their general appetite for defense of allies, like taking risks, you know, risking blood and treasure is quite low. And it's quite low in relation in particular to experts who view all of these countries a little bit differently. So like there's a nuanced perspective among the experts, but the experts also like three X the fucking, the attitude or the view of like accepting risks to defend allies and partners. So I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's seriously their, their risk propensity or attitude toward protecting allies. They're willing to spend blood and treasure three times more, sometimes four times more as the general public. And that gap between experts and publics, I mean, what you think of it, I guess, depends on why you think it exists. Like, there's one narrative, I think the CSIS narrative, because they're like a very conventional think tank, and they're also right-leaning, even though they're nonpartisan. I think the reason that they're motivated to do this is like, look, the people who know things think we should be willing to, like, die for our allies. And the people who don't know shit, the general public... They are on a different wavelength and that the gap is worrying no matter who you are. But if you're like the technocrat expert people and you see that the, the popular opinion is against you, then you like ring alarm bells about it, you know? So like I think the CSIS view is like people need to listen to the experts, but the experts on like we've talked about this many times, like on China in particular in Washington, there's like serious group think, you know, and there's dissent. The, I, I don't know who they like look who they posed this question to. Um, like, I don't think they were talking to the fucking Quincy Institute people. This gap is dangerous. You know, foreign policy is an elite activity. You do want to respect the opinions of experts or have experts with their hands on the levers of power. But public opinion is, is what the writing on the wall is. You know, like the sustainability of your commitments depends on popular support or not. And a president is going to be much more sensitive to public opinion than the fucking mandarins, than the intellectuals, you know? Um, so there's danger yeah. here. Has this not been going on for a lot longer than maybe we're, in, we're, we're thinking here? Like, cause it seems just from my outside observance that 
American, the American public has not really been on board with the foreign policy goals of the country since Bush, because it seems there's always seems to be a disconnect between what is always promised and what happens. And they wouldn't make these promises unless, you know, the, the overwhelming narrative is we want to get out of Afghanistan, we want to get out of Iraq. And it just never happens because it's that sort of the disconnect. Is that unfair? Well, so public opinion is just kind of apathetic about most foreign policy issues. They get riled up about discrete issues at discrete moments, right? So you saw like a mass influx of negative Mm. opinion and resistance to the Iraq war at the moment of the Iraq war. But then like you see all that passion kind of die down once the Iraq war starts. And there are all these other decisions. Like there was a surge in Iraq in like 2006, 2007, and you didn't see anything like the mobilization that you saw in 2003 when you had the surge. Like you have all these other decisions. The fact that we stay there year on year, there are NGOs and advocacy groups who, you know, send out email blasts and stuff about, you know, defund the Iraq war. But there's not it's not the same thing as like having a million people in the streets, which is like sort of where we were in 2003. Yeah. And so the the way public opinion weighs in on foreign policy stuff, it's like sniping at very tailored targets. And then the, the in general stuff is much more like. Uh, unaccountable or the the elites are much more unaccountable what's funny though about trump is that he i just saw the other day like uh public opinion in favor of free trade and in favor of alliances has is at like uh, unprecedented yeah. levels because <laughs> because of trump because he fucked it up yeah because <laughs> he fucked it up. Yeah. so like you basically trump has made toxic his own positions so <laughs> yeah you got enough of a republican shoot himself in the foot yeah I don't know. So like, this is worth flagging. If I'm an ally, and I guess particular in Taiwan, but like, if I'm any of the allies of the U.S. right now, I look at this gap between experts and the public, and I should be shitting bricks. Like, I should be coming up with strategies for how to cope with this. This inherently signals U.S. unreliability, because what what's going to happen is you're going to invite fucking think tank experts from CSIS and CNAS and the Wilson Center and fucking CAP and all these places and CFR. Oh, they know their shit. They could tell you the ins and outs of North Korea's nuclear program and China's military modernization and fucking South China Sea freedom of navigation operation patterns and all this bullshit. But what that's going to like add up to is them telling you what you want to hear about American power in the Pacific. And it doesn't reflect popular opinion so when they tell you about like what we're going to do with the military and our force posture and all this stuff they're almost like a constituency or like an interest group they're the interest group for u.s internationalism and forward military presence but it's like the american public is on a, a different wavelength they're not isolationist but like it only sort of intersects with the elites and there's lots of gaps right so it's like the american public is pro-alliance but they're not pro go to war for the alliances so i'm i would be concerned man if i'm sitting in australia that's all i'm saying i mean b- before we push on yeah we basically are sitting in australia right like new zealand and australia are basically the same country so i shit you not a lot when i was in the obama administration there was a question among some of us like we didn't deal with new zealand really much you know there was a question among some of us about whether we were actually allies with New Zealand. 
because like we knew there was something that was going on like like New Zealand could have been like calling us an ally and we would have just accepted it you know it's like we knew something what happened with nukes in the 80s yeah but it was like very foggy and the Anzus treaty still existed we were committed well, to Australia without in it yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so the ends of the ends of it. We didn't take the so treaty the... though and then cross out New Zealand's name. Like the treaty still <laughs> exists. It's a political like speech <laughs> act thing that we're not allies. We didn't For American listeners, a, a massive part of New Zealand's kind of identity development process was this nuclear free spat uh, in the, the late twentieth century. <laughs> um we we were just like, fuck you, America. We don't want your nuclear weapons. We're not going to allow your ships to come into the country. It's a really big deal in New Zealand, and so we 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 plunged out of the ANZUS Treaty. But we, we didn't actually <laughs> we didn't actually plunge out of the ANZUS Treaty. We just said we did. Yeah. So we're not yeah. quite sure what's happening anymore. No one's quite sure where we are. So I did I for one of the books that I'm working on. I like was looking through some archival documents um, from the Reagan era from the 1980s. The Reagan administration was very imperious uh, towards allies. But one of the things and that's evident in how they responded to New Zealand's petulance about the nuclear issue, both sides were being bizarrely petty and it resulted in this fragment fracture. But what they said internally <laughs> was that, look, if New Zealand changes its position on allowing nuclear capable ships to come into port not reversing their position just accommodating what they had accommodated prior to the government in the 80s in new zealand then the u.s would like welcome them back as an ally and everything would be like as it was they had to as in, as shitty as the reagan administration was they had decided internally that like this is a narrow issue that like if they can sort of meet us halfway on this then we'll reverse it and the problem is that nobody knows that I mean, the context has changed so much now. People in New Zealand basically don't want to be allies with the U.S. So that, that it's understandable uh, in the current context. I have to say, Van, that only comes with the assumption that we are currently. Because like you said, a lot of people don't really know. And a lot of us will talk a big game about not wanting to be allies with the United States because we assume that we have the ability to cut it off at any time, whereas we really don't. We've already sort of pushed our boundary. And the best part about that whole nuclear-free debate was um, our Prime Minister, David Longy, telling that snake of a man, Jerry Falwell, that he can smell uranium, that he could smell uranium on his breath. To, to link it back to where we are now and maybe make this, this yarn about New Zealand's identity more relevant for our American listeners, is that I think Jake's right, Like, and I think Van's right, there's no pressing desire among New Zealanders to formalize or strengthen our alliance with America, particularly now, like New Zealanders yeah, think that America is batshit fucking mad <laughs> yeah. and that it would be actively dangerous to align ourselves with the United <laughs> States. And I'm pretty sure yeah. that's the same the whole world around. Like, it's just not good. Yeah. No, I mean, other than Taiwan, there is no chance of anybody becoming a formal ally of the United States in the foreseeable future. And even that's not I mean, that's not likely either. It's just like, it's impossible everywhere, except the Taiwan question. Um, and But they, even there, it's unlikely. Next quick hit was, <laughs> it's a double shout out, right, to uh, Dan Nexon, professor at Georgetown, and Foreign Affairs, very establishment-y magazine, pundit magazine of record. They did do these like yeah. expert surveys on occasion, and I've they, they've 
brought me into it before on this current one that they did. They, I was not part of it, but they just basically pose a single question and then they ask for your like on a scale of one to 10, how much do you agree or disagree or whatever? They grabbed a basket of experts that is more genuinely diverse than I've ever seen in my life on foreign policy. They've got restrainers, Quincy Institute people, they've got black people, they've got women, they've got Latinos, they've got Asians, they've got white men, uh, surprise, and they've got like, it's, <laughs> they have all manner of diversities, right? So it's not just race, it's not just gender, it's the one that I complain about the most, which is intellectual diversity. They have people, real diversity. Yeah, yeah, they've got neocons, they've got a couple leftists, like genuine leftists. Um, it's it's a real diverse group. Shout out for like somebody finally getting the memo. These guys proved that it's possible to actually ha show diversity in foreign policy. That's not tokenism. That's fucking huge. And it's interesting to see the the infographic of like where the spectrum of opinion lies on this on this question because it's like all over the place and the question again i don't know if i said it <laughs> should u.s foreign policy focus on great power competition and opinion is all over the place but this is a this is like the heaviest intellectual question for foreign policy that that exists right now should this fucking rivalry with china be our lodestar you know and dan nexon had the greatest response of everybody in this thing because he got picked up on this survey and he said quote the notion that great power competition should be the lodestar of U.S. foreign policy is roughly equivalent to the idea that arguing with the neighbors should be the organizing principle of someone's life. It's not like you never have to argue with your neighbors or that you should always avoid arguing with your neighbors, but it's for instrumental reasons because there's like a direct conflict of interest. There's something specific. The idea that you're going to like reorient your life so that you can bitch and moan and make a rival of your of the person that's ne right next to you forever pretty stupid so i thought this quote was like a very good summation of the position that argues we should not make great power competition the overwhelming focus of our life it is a huge issue and great power competition is something that is happening Right. You cannot wish it away. The, the issue is like, how much is it going to be the thing that like you bend all your resources and intellectual energy toward, you know, are you going to rip <sighs> competition is not a fucking paradigm, you know, um, all it does is foreclose on choices. Yeah. I hate to bring in a bit of far left theory, but what if the opposite side, what if China is keen on great power competition, even Sorry, though before... the US before Van answers that, you hate to bring in a bit of far left theory. Is that a, <laughs> is it an accurate statement? I, I love to bring in a bit of far left theory. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't get a chance much anymore. You see, it's it's some of it's become a bit irrelevant. But yeah. <laughs> especially with this, if China is uh, intent on having great power competition with the United States. Is it really a choice of the United States to say that we can't focus on it? Well, no, see, that's the false premise, right? Or like that's that's the frame that people want, that Washington wants everyone to just take for granted. Because yeah. China is competing with the U.S., like you, you, you really need to unpack what that means because it's a, it's happening in different ways across a bunch of different landscapes or domains. 
Like it looks very different in the realm of political economy or the technology sector uh, as compared to actual geopolitics, traditional geopolitics, right? Or the military, balance of power. Competition is happening. It is a fundamentally zero-sum dynamic that's happening with China right now. And we know that China respects power. They have revisionist goals. Question is, will they use revisionist means, right? You can take all of, you can accept all of that and not say that we're going to 100% be all in to a containment strategy. The, the notion that you're going to be competing with China doesn't mean that that should be your overwhelming priority or your only priority. What you choose to make your guiding principle, uh, if you're going to have one, needs to be like very thoughtfully selected. And there's a certain amount of like inflation of China's importance or threat inflation, if you want to call it that, or threat distortion, I guess. When you start placing the the fact of competition as this thing that becomes your, yeah. the like Nexon said, lodestar. This is the thing that you orient everything toward. You can compete without saying that it's going to take over your life. You can have a dispute of with course. your neighbors without mm. staying up in the middle of the night plotting how you're going to fuck your neighbor over, right? Don't <laughs> waste your life doing that, you know? <laughs> Who does that? I don't do that. Go on, sorry. Come on, I guys. Know. I try Who very hard not to life? have enemies, you know? Like, having <laughs> studying North Korea for a long time, it made me really believe in my core that if you can avoid having rivals, you ought to avoid having rivals, because you, it distorts the way that you think rationally. It distorts your priorities, the means you're willing to expend to pursue certain ends, what your ends are. Like, who should give a fuck about North Korea, but we keep risking nuclear war over them? Once you let a rivalry set in, all manner of, like, coherent thought starts to get distorted. And that's super dangerous. That's how you get Vietnam Wars. Anyways. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, shout out, shout out to Foreign Affairs, shout out to Nexon for being cute. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for Prediction Market this week, question one, will China officially sanction Malaysia for detaining 60 Chinese nationals before December? And this is following from a story from the Citizens Journal of Malaysia, explaining how Malaysia's detained 60 Chinese nationals and six vessels so I think China will go down the path of some form of, of sanction or punishment for Malaysia if Malaysia continues to hold these Chinese nationals over the next, you know, two months. So, so the answer to the question depends on whether Malaysia continues to hold on to them. Because detaining, you know, Chinese fishermen and Chinese vessels, like other countries have done that too. And sometimes it has uh, not resulted in any kind of retaliation or punishment but it's because everything gets resolved sort of quickly or quietly and you know generally speaking i would say china's not inclined to like mm -hmm. escalate these issues like you don't want some like peripheral fisheries issue to become uh, a crisis or an interstate conflict but like xi jinping's fucking out of his mind it seems like lately and china has been like 
has demonstrated a pattern of of aggression on like almost every front. It's just it's hard to deny that like China is willing to take more risks in international relations lately. I'm going to say China will not impose a punishment or sanction on Malaysia before December. But that's on the presumption that Malaysia is going to somehow like quietly release these fishermen or something. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. It was I just thought it was pretty um, ballsy of mm. Malaysia just to detain 60 Chinese nationals because that you don't really do that um, yeah. today. Well, Indonesia has done it before, not 60, but mm. um, and I want to say yeah. Vietnam has done it too. Like there, it's a the way the South China Sea like conflict mm. dispute plays out, there are these points of genuine geopolitical friction that come up, but it it's happening between not militaries, you know, like coast guards or commercial fishermen. And there's a risk that, that, that chain gangs and escalates up to militaries, but because it's happening, you're having real clashes, but it's clashes with people who don't have the means to kill each other. Yeah, of course. Now, question two, there's a bit of a disclaimer at the start. I've got a few messages from listeners telling me very, very strong terms that Van got last week's prediction on Azerbaijan and Armenia wrong. What? But he, You didn't, Van, because the question was, will there be a withdrawal of troops? A ceasefire is not a withdrawal of troops. So you aren't wrong, despite what some of our disloyal listeners mate that's right i'm right you fucks also (laughs) i mean also the ceasefire is under tremendous uh, to say it's like under pressure it's it's basically not holding question two will the armenia azerbaijan ceasefire hold throughout the rest of the year and as i was typing it there were reports of shelling starting already so i think this is answerable pretty yeah yeah i mean ceasefires unless there's a some kind of like peace process or negotiating process that's an addendum to a ceasefire they never hold on the ground and there's like always people violating them on the margins and it's only a question of whether the governments want to um, elevate that or escalate it right or treat like do you have incentives mm-hmm. as a government to downplay these violations right like the cuban missile crisis a soviet ship gets through the quarantine do you go to nuclear war now or do you let it slide right and so it depends on what your incentives are whether you want to downplay it or like elevate it but violations are going to happen you know and already violations are happening so it's like it's a matter of interpretation whether you could say the ceasefire even exists right now so to answer the question i'm going to say no the ceasefire will not hold um through the rest of the year but in part because it's like it's like asking me if it's going to rain today and it's currently raining (laughs) it's a nice way to say dumb fucking question that's that's, that's okay i I would phrase it as easy fucking prediction (laughs) question three Will the United States walk back on their intentions to draw down their troop presence in Iraq following the revelation that insurgent groups backed by Iran are going to restart offensives in the green zone in Baghdad before December? If we draw down troop presence in Iraq, it's going to be because of like a Trump-related political stunt, or if we do it in the next couple months, right? Like if we do it in 2020. There is totally that possibility. Uh, I'm seeing indications or murmurs that Trump's new October surprise because him getting COVID wasn't enough. His new October surprise is going to be like a package of foreign policy pronouncements 
fake peace with North Korea is on the table. So is so is war with North Korea, you know, like a fake Middle East peace process, uh, withdrawal from endless wars, which is Afghanistan and Iraq. And so this question exists in that context where Trump may see electoral reasons to withdraw from Iraq or to at least keep the momentum going toward withdrawal. But the military is like unchanged in their view about this, the national security community. There's a narrative that ISIS arose specifically because Obama pulled out from Iraq prematurely, you know, and that's not untrue. It's not the whole story, but that's like, that's not wrong. And so like, I, I say, get the fuck out. There are consequences to troop withdrawals. And those consequences are the foremost concern of like the national security people. And therefore they always want to stay. Therefore endless wars continue. It's a fuck. It's a hell of a mind fuck problem. But to be clear, I say, get the fuck out. Um, so Iraq, you know, troops are going to stay there. I think by default, unless Trump pulls a stunt, that's the answer. But would it be fair to say that members of the, uh, I don't know what you guys would call yourself, the um, withdrawal lobby, the peace lobby, is it true that even they would see a Trump withdrawal in the way that he would do it as irresponsible? Like Because the fact that it would be pretty heinous to essentially um, occupy a country and then leave knowing that it's going to start being besieged by insurgents pretty much as soon as you do. Yeah, sort of a double-edged sword there, eh? These dovish foreign policy moves that Trump flirts with, like it was the same thing with the summits with North Korea, like they very cleverly, I don't know if it's his intention, but they split the left because there are those who think that you should be designing, you should be making choices based on the world as it is. So in some sense, you have to like take into account reality. And then there's another view on the left that the simplistic notion is like be the change you know like the gandhi quote you have to act from a place of principle in order to create the world that would exist according to your principle Mm. and so you it's it's a little bit of like willful rejection of reality in favor of like making your world and like that is a huge segment of the left mostly the the segment of the left that is not in power and has never had power but um, yeah. that <laughs> doesn't make it any less of a constituency, you know, like, thanks, man. That warms my heart. <laughs> so that's, that's the disagreement on um, withdrawing troops from Syria too, where you like abandon the Kurds. There were some people on the left who were like, mm-hmm. Oh, look, the Hawks want us to stay in Syria, even though like we don't have a dog in that fight, or even though it's encouraging Russian involvement and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's regime change for Assad. That was not a majority opinion, but like that was there. And it was in contrast to the other progressive view, which was like, first of all, the Kurds happen to be fucking social Democrats. So like they're a socialist project in the making. You know, exactly. And so like, you don't yeah. don't abandon the socialist experiment. But also Kurds existence there was depending on the deterrence mm-hmm. of our presence. Like we were protecting them. And, you know, that's like literally abandoning them to withdrawal. So it was it was again, it's like Trump makes this decision that looks like peace or whatever, or looks like what the left should want. But he does it in a way that splits people down the middle. You know, it's like makes it very contentious. Why didn't you mention the Kurds, man? Because just as I'm 
that's in production market. This episode actually marks one year since I was invited to be involved with the podcast. And I'd just like to give a huge thank you to you guys, my comrades, and the and the listeners especially, because I've had an amazing time. I've, it's never really felt like work. I've loved every second of it. And the first thing I was actually ever given the chance to say on the podcast was Trump is trading uh, Kurdish lives for oil. <laughs> so it's, I mean, I mean, so nice anniversary. Well, prediction market this week. Yeah, yeah, I know, cool. right? Happy anniversary, guys! Time for sale Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter, so that you don't have to. All right, for stay off Twitter this week, first tweet is from Patrick Iber, who is a uh, progressive slash leftist uh, historian, and uh, he just says quite simply. You can engage in today's debates for fun if you want, but events are overdetermined. That is all. And uh, I feel like yeah, this I didn't tweet... get this one. Really? I didn't get... Yeah. I, well, it's it's not not in the way that I think it was intended. So your explanation will probably help. A it lot. seems like nobody got it. Like it was not a. This tweet didn't blow up <laughs> or anything. Uh, even though he has like a pretty sizable audience, like, nobody jumped on this tweet. I don't fucking understand why. Everything that we're seeing right now is the culmination, it's the consummation of forces that were set in motion in many ways long ago. You combine something like the pandemic with the trajectory of economic inequality with the, toward ol in the direction of oligarchy, combining that with climate degradation that's like at a devastating level with the white supremacy tradition that has always been there and has sort of gotten worse in recent decades but that like we continued to try and suppress anyway combine like all of this stuff together is pointing us in the same direction of anti-democratic the, the emergence of the republican party as basically a fascist party all of these things favor the outcome of oligarchy, of autocracy, of in like American neo-fascism, you know, it's set in motion yeah, already. Okay. There's, mm. and so when something is overdetermined, it means that there are multiple causes, and any one of them would be sufficient to explain the thing you want to explain. And so when something is overdetermined, uh, or you claim something is overdetermined in the future. You're, what you're basically saying is that there is no way to like rationalize your way out of the outcome. That's what's set in motion. That's what's happening. And so when, when I read this, this is how I'm thinking about the current moment. We can talk about Biden. I don't even know if he means it this way. This is how I'm like interpreting it. We can, we can focus all of our hopes and dreams on Biden, hope he pulls it off, and hope that Trump fucking steps down um, and doesn't try to like you know, strong arm the government or whatever. But we have set in motion the right wing militias committing terrorist acts and declaring civil war. We have set in motion state violence grounded in white supremacy. We have set in motion an unyielding commitment to military superiority abroad, no matter the cost. We have set in motion this, this strategic rivalry with China that will not be undone. Yeah. No matter what, where Biden wants to like go or ease, moderate his positions, it's still going to be in a context of strategic rivalry with China. All these things are just fixed. And so like Biden comes in, the right wing militias don't go away. The China rivalry doesn't go away. The climate crisis doesn't go away. 
So like there aren't discrete choices that we can make right now or that are fe- that are plausible right now that are going to change the trajectory of any of these things. And we're sort of fooling ourselves if we think they are. I don't know if I'm reading him correctly, but that was what I read into his his tweet. We'll, we'll see. Anyways, shout out to him for that. Maybe I'm like way off base because other people didn't seem to like this tweet either. Now you explained it, man. It actually makes a lot more sense to me. And especially since you mentioned, you know, the white nationalist terrorist activity, domestic terrorist, because mm. I think a lot of people on the progressive left think this is purely a Trump thing, but it's really not. Timothy McVeigh yeah. was in the 90s and yeah. he had a copy of the Turner Diaries, which is the most racist piece of shit book I've ever read in my life. So it's like, hey, this isn't a new thing. And if I, if Obama couldn't fix it, and I know it's a very simplistic view, Biden is going to have a really hard time turning it around at the magnitude that he wants to. It's just everything is pointing in a negative direction. And, I, and I, it's, it's hard to see how any discrete decisions that happen now are going to change that. But let's be more positive and just go to the next tweet. Uh, so <laughs> second tweet. Hunter, actually, this is not super positive either. Hunter Marsden, who's a PhD candidate at Australian National University, he just tweeted out the uh, the whole point of our national security strategy. He's talking about the U.S. Great power competition, free and open Indo-Pacific. The whole point of all of that is to distinguish ourselves from corrupt and repressive regimes like China and Russia. This is a page. Trump's is a page from the Autocrats Handbook. And he's talking about a piece in the New York Times that talk about Trump manipulating the State Department, manipulating the levers of government, not just on foreign policy. In fact, not even primarily on foreign policy, on domestic policy. Um, The corrupted Justice Department, Attorney General, who's his quizzling. All of this stuff is... I love it, too. It's all anti-democratic. It's all authoritarian. It's all corrupt. Ice Cube said everything's corrupt. Everything is corrupt. <laughs> and <laughs> this is the, the irony of it is that like the, the claim rhetorically is like free and open Indo-Pacific, you know? So it's like, what is the point of the competition with China if we are morally corroded, if we are not democratic? I started off my stay off Twitter tweets with one from Kirk Serps, who is the co-founder of Generation Zero. So his tweet is referring to a comment from Lauren Witzke? Witzke, who is an American first Republican U.S. senator candidate for Delaware, where um, basically her tweet was going, sorry. how do you say it? No, I just said she's a psycho. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I thought you were asking me to uh, no. pronounce her name properly. It was a reflex. That's all right. I don't, I don't, I don't, know. I don't <laughs> care what her name is. Fuck her. Keep yeah. going. <laughs> all right. Lauren Mike Wazowski goes, most third world migrants cannot assimilate into civil societies. Prove me wrong. Anyway, besides that being racist as shit and getting some excellent rebuttals in return, Serb's response was one that I found, like, kind of really funny. Because he goes, I'm sorry, but American migrants to New Zealand have done a, a fine job of assimilating <laughs> into our society. Like, it's so good. So how yeah. do you think about that, Ben? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm so I'm not sure if Kirk's name is Serps or Serpes. Serpes? I don't know. <laughs> But <laughs> I don't know. So, it's like everyone I hope it's not Serpies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope it's 
This poor man. <laughs> Anyways, maybe he can clarify, but um, the point is profound, and it's like it's something you can only appreciate if you look outside the United States. New Zealand is actually a great example here. There are few societies as civilized as New Zealand's as is for what that's worth, <laughs> and New Zealand's done a crack up good. I don't even know what the phrase would be, but like an excellent job compared to (laughs) other countries assimilating third world immigrants, or if you want to call them fucking immigrants, like people from other countries. I don't even, the third world thing seems pretty like antiquated, but yeah, like New Zealand is proof that you can create a more cosmopolitan society that accepts ethnic diversity. And so it's not just that you like wash out ethnic difference, but that you can like have it all coexist peaceably. And New Zealand has its fucking, I don't want to like paint New Zealand as utopia because they got fucking problems, but it, yeah, for sure. it pales in comparison to the problems that are going on in fucking the United States or like even in Western Europe. Um, so anyway, we're getting on to our, my second tweet. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say something else. I was like, it's cool. Um, for my second tweet, got more of an oof kind of moment. This one is from Stephen Wolpe, professor of international affairs at Harvard Kennedy School. His tweet reads, every now and then I ponder this peculiar fact. You are more likely to jeopardize your career in the U.S. foreign policy establishment by being outspokenly in favor of peace than by being overtly eager to use military force. That's also kind of fucked up. Yep. That's a trend this week. It's fucked up things. So this is from Stephen Walt, the balance of threat theory guy, the guy who's like a curmudgeon restrainer about, you know, grand strategy and American overextension. Um, very well respected, but also somebody like he's legit as fuck, but also somebody who like I fucking hated in so many ways for so long um, because his foreign policy opinions are like 80% wrong and often gross (laughs) to me. Um, But he's right about some things and he's definitely smart. And uh, this tweet is like an example of the right slash smart thing. Like it's absolutely true that you don't get to exist as part of the national security community as a peacenik. Maybe that changes in the future, but currently it's not, Mm. you can't do it. Um, And part of it is the fact, like what we were talking about earlier about the reality of how the world currently is. And you have to like respond to that, you know? So like you cannot advocate for peace as the actual policy response to somebody clubbing you over the head, right? A pacifist (laughs) could, but like not, not a sane, rational person and not in the context of like, national security decision-making like a president couldn't do that. But also there's a, like, it's not popular to take that kind of position. Like if you take that kind of position, you will be sort of uh, dismissed or fringified or ostracized from, from the community. So like there is a taboo against arguing um, for those kinds of policies most of the time. And on North Korea is a great example of this. Like uh, I've taken this like very hard position on like we need to be willing to end the Korean War, among other things. That position is not a popular position in Washington. There's a reason why U.S. North Korea policy has not changed. There's a reason why the Korean War stays in place. And it's not all down to North Korea. I am not a majority opinion in saying that we need to declare an end to the Korean War. Um, there in there's a growing movement in Congress. It's still a minority in Congress too, 
to end the Korean War. And there are things you got to figure out if you do this. How does it affect the strategic situation? I think if you do it by itself, it actually doesn't affect the strategic situation. You want to make sure that you're not undermining alliance commitments or whatever when you make moves like this. Um, so you, you want to understand what the expected ripple effects will be of your decision. And it's that logic trail that ends up trapping most national security people because they get wrapped up in the if-then uh, hypothesized consequences. And then that leads you to doing making bad or amoral decisions a lot of times because um, you get stuck in the logic trap. But yeah, like I think this is broadly true though. Like if you want to make a career in Washington foreign policy, you can't go wrong being, you know, biased toward militarism in all of its forms. The the smartest thing mm. to do to be part of the foreign policy establishment is to just fucking have no opinions and just say what everybody else is saying. <laughs> like that's what fucking well, everybody does. That's a sad, um, paints a sad picture of career prospects for someone yeah. entering, you know. But I mean, <laughs> the ability for change, like, like we always talk about on the show, the technocratic ability for change is always there though, right? Like we're pretty certain about that. We're not entirely hopeless, or that might sound so. No, yeah, I mean, and like that's the, you know, I disagree with the Quincy Institute about a lot of a lot of their specific positions that people there take on different issues, but in general, or like the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank, I fucking, I'm like allergic <laughs> to libertarianism, but like, yeah, me too. Just me the too. <laughs> just the fact that like you can now these think tanks now exist and you can draw on their people and on their experts and their wisdom. Uh, such as it is, to be part of a conversation with people who are just deeply committed to militaristic groupthink, that changes the pool of available, you know, intellectual labor. It changes the conversation a little bit. And that is like what's desperately needed to avoid the like white man's club, you know, best and brightest shit from the 50s and the 60s, which got us into like a lot of bad things. So there is hope in the future that this changes. But the establishment as, as it's been constructed is as Steve Walt describes it here. So shout out, even though generally I'm not like a huge fan of Steve Walt. Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. This week for Armchair, we're going to be doing a piece called Is Vietnam the Next Asian Miracle? Uh, the answer to which, according to the author, Ruchia Sharma, appears to be yes. Um, and this is a piece in the New York Times. It was um, a couple of days ago. And broadly, Ruchia's, well, Ruchia starts by saying that rapid isolation of outbreaks has kept Vietnam's death rate among the four lowest in the world, well under one death per million people. And at the same time, they've been able to grow at this kind of 3% annual pace, and that's being driven by a record trade surplus, which is admittedly really impressive. And he compares that to the, the Asian miracles of the post-World War, so Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and then most recently China, who he says grew their way out of poverty by opening to trade and investment and becoming manufacturing export powerhouses, and that now Vietnam is following the same path but in an entirely new age. And he notes that the conditions that he thinks made those original miracles possible are gone. So there's no post-war baby boom. There's no rapid globalization with growing trade and investment, according to him. Um, there's slowing global growth. And there's also more assertive superpowers who are no longer willing to ignore the tactics that earlier miracles used to get an edge. So currency manipulation, for example, which the United States 
recently formally accused Vietnam of participating in. He notes problematically that autocrats can force very rapid growth, but often their unchecked policy whims and obsessions generate erratic boom and bust cycles, which is a great understatement. Um, and then writes that well, he poses the question, can Vietnam continue its success despite potential obstacles such as shrinking populations, declining trade, and an autocratic government's tenacious grip on power? Probably. While its own working age population growth is slowing, most Vietnamese still live in the countryside, so the economy can continue to grow by shifting workers from rural areas to urban factory jobs. It is making autocratic capitalism work unusually well through open economic policies and sound financial management. I thought this piece was really interesting because it, it reveals a certain perspective. So Ruchier is the chief global strategist at, at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, and it shows the willingness of people in that bracket to buy into that kind of autocratic capitalism and to, and to see it in that, what I thought was a remarkably positive light. But I was really keen to get your perspective then. I'm imagining you don't agree with the premise of the piece, but why? Why not? Yeah, so there are some there are some sound, I don't wouldn't call them fundamentals, but there are some sound features of Vietnam's economic situation that he rightly highlights to say, look, I see a lot of promise here. The things that he points to are not wrong. But for one thing, you should always beware when a finance guy or a guy from the consulting world touts the next big anything. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's how we got the fucking fake brick nations thing, right? Yep. That was a management consulting creation. All of these things, the notion of the East Asian miracle. So this is uh, where my like more serious critique comes in that it's the, the Asian miracle narrative was itself a creation. I'm not a, I'm not an economist, right? I'm a political scientist. I happen to know uh, a lot about Asian political economy and I just don't talk about it much because <laughs> I don't think it's very interesting. Yeah. It's not worth me writing about, but the, I'm going to like take you to school here a little bit. Okay. Right. <laughs> why, why did the Asian newly industrialized economies in the seventies and eighties boom? What was the reason for the miracle? Because they stopped being communist. Yes. Okay. So that's, that is an answer, right? Let's be even more precise. The reason, the, like, why did, why did stopping being communism matter? Was it just because that flight of capital from developed nations to newly uncommunist or non-communist countries uh, where they could have incredibly low labor costs provide this kind of surge of foreign investment? Yes. Part of it, right? Eventually that, Eventually, that was part of the equation, too. The, the NICs, the Asian miracles, the newly industrializing economies, the boom that made them a miracle, the dramatic growth rate over like the 70s and early 80s, that was from mobilizing inputs, massive, massive inputs into the economy that were latent before because you were a colony yourself, because you didn't have your own economy or because you were a fucking communist or whatever. So for whatever reason, you had all these inputs to the economy that suddenly got injected all at once. And so when we talk about economic inputs, we're talking about specifically education levels, the labor force and physical capital. So like expanding the labor force, you're, you're mobilizing people into the economy to make them contributors to the national economy, you're increasing education levels, and then you're investing in infrastructure. And all of those things are inputs. 
But productivity growth, when you talk about how much an economy is going to grow, the growth prospects have to be based on more than, it's about the efficiency of the inputs. So when you look at a huge initial growth, how much of that growth was because of an increase in inputs? In the case of the Asian miracles, it was almost entirely because of an increase in inputs. And that's the same reason why the Soviet economy in the 1950s and 60s was gangbusters growing huge. So like if you remember like the communist economies, even North Korea's economy in the 50s and 60s, high growth. Are, are you saying the communists are like high growth, <laughs> high prospect? Of course not, right? So what was the reason for the Soviets having high growth rates? It was because of high input rates into the economy. The problem why the Soviet model didn't work, it's not just like, oh, central planning doesn't work. That's like a, a neoliberal thing. The problem was that these inputs into the economy were highly inefficient. You can only educate your labor force so much. You can only add so many people to your labor force. You can only build so much infrastructure. At a certain point, those you think of them as investments. Those investments, when you initially make them, it makes the economy look big. It, it has an initial impact. And then it peters out. Your growth prospects in the future depend very much on the efficiency of the, the actual factor productivity of these inputs. So for each unit of input into your economy, how much output are you generating? And that comes down to technology and it comes down to knowledge. And that is something that you typically associate with, I don't want to call it like Western, but like a more open system. Um, and this is uh, one of the similar things that has hobbled or put limitations on China, right? So it's not just that an autocratic government is going to inherently put out numbers that can't be trusted. And there's going to be like a certain regulatory opacity that's just not going to, you can't overcome that ultimately until you have political reform, which is a uh, unlikely thing to bet on in these countries. But it's the problem is bigger than that, right? And this is the Vietnam problem. The Asian miracles, only after the initial miracle moment, they took that their capital that they generated from that initial growth, the initial input boom, they were not reinvesting it at home in new projects very much because the rate of return on investments at home was low. It was low because productivity was low off of the inputs. So they were basically very inefficient economies. So how did the Asian economic growth keep growing after this initial boom? It kept growing because the United States was offering high rates of return on capital. And it needed foreign capital in order to fund, ironically, the giant fucking military machine that Reagan started building in the fucking 80s. America was running these huge deficits. It needed to finance the deficits. The main source of financing came from the Asian economies. I mean, especially Japan, but like all the Asian economies. So those countries were taking their capital growth and they were, because of like diminishing returns or low returns domestically, they were funneling that. And China has been doing this too for the last 15, 20 years funneling those resources into investment in American companies, American real estate, right? Trying to get higher rates of return. That money then kept the growth of these countries going, plus uh, the American consumer market. So the export-led growth model that Asian economies had slash have, I mean, they haven't... Uh, 
that's still the growth model, even for Vietnam, because the domestic consumption is not where their economies are growing. And Vietnam has like, it's not some huge population, right? So the export-led model means you have to have export markets. What's, where is the destination for your the goods that you produce going to go? And for 30 years, the American consumer market has been that place where their goods can go to sustain the growth. But the American consumer market, if America's in a civil war, it's not going to be super high, right? And that's where we're headed. And even if you the, the pandemic puts a real crimp on all of this, the idea that you're going to calculate growth projections in the context of a pandemic is like farcical to me. But the real structural problem with the Vietnam is the next miracle argument is it really depends on Vietnam sustaining a low currency, which the U.S. is trying to discourage right now, like you mentioned in the piece, but also depending on continuing access to the American consumer market. If that changes, which is currently changing right now, then Vietnam cannot be the next miracle. And even if the American consumer market stays there for Vietnam, you still have this basic problem that to compare Vietnam to the Asian miracles is to say that Vietnam is also going to have this uh, initial boom that's based on inefficient productivity or the illusory productivity because it's all inputs into the economy. And so like, I, I'm not saying that Vietnam can't have a successful economy, but the miracles were not as miraculous as they appeared. And the reason people think of them as miracles is simply fucking marketing. It's the consultants and the fucking Asian scholars who wanted to tout an alternative model to the West, justify authoritarian regimes in Asia by yoking it to capitalism and being like, see, their growth rates are better. But that's all storytelling, man. That's not how the fucking political economy of Asia actually worked. When you understand more precisely why the miracles happened at all, you understand why they stopped at a certain point. Why Japan, who was the leader of the fucking world economically, fucking fell in on itself and is just another advanced nation. And like their growth rates just, just shrunk down to almost zero you know all of that makes me sort of pessimistic about vietnam or skeptical about this claim yeah i mean i, I guess we need some more economics on the podcast uh, one thing that i find slightly confusing and we don't have a huge amount of time so maybe just a, a quick hit on this then but given all that why is vietnam succeeding relative to the rest of the world in dealing with this pandemic and still growing because it, it feels like a weird moment that's actually a super interesting question i have a friend who's an asia asian security scholar but who's ethnically vietnamese himself so he's like an american but he's very dialed into the realities of vietnam and he keeps arguing on twitter tom his name's tom lee he's at pomona college but he uh keeps arguing on twitter about how like vietnam is this very underappreciated success case but from what i've seen vietnam is not i mean that's true um on the pandemic what I've seen is like they're not doing anything different than what New Zealand's doing, right? It's contact tracing and widespread availability of testing. And they they had um, closed borders for a while. I don't know if they still do or not. But they never went through the same degree of lockdown that New Zealand did. And they've still done pretty well. New Zealand has done better than them. But they've done pretty well. I don't know. The success... Vietnam, I don't think, is uniquely successful. I guess is what I'm saying um, about when it comes to the pandemic. They are successful, but they're doing the same best practices that every successful nation has been doing, I think. 
All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. Cool, so for AMA this week, we've got two questions for Van. Question one from Chairman Mayonnaise. I noticed last week you called out Hollywood <laughs> for allowing itself to be used as a political tool by China. Has the US government not been doing the same since movies started? So the the wording of this question is slightly confusing to me. I think it's asking if Hol- if the US has used Hollywood as a political tool in the past. Is that right, you think? Um, it was asked by a friend of mine on a Discord server I'm a part of. Um, it was framed in the idea, I, I, I can't really help when they word these questions like this, but he was sort of saying, you know, because last week you talked a lot about um, Hollywood being used as a tool by China. Yeah. And it's, it sounded like from his perspective that you were arguing that it shouldn't be used as a tool at all. But he felt like Hollywood has been used as a political tool from the very beginning. Like you don't like, you mentioned that we don't see China as a bad guy. We equally don't see um, the United Kingdom as a bad guy. You know, you don't see the UK fighting the United States. You don't see Australia fighting the United States. What's well, because the UK and Australia yeah. are not actually bad guys. China is yeah, actually yeah. a bad guy. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah, we, That's... <laughs> we know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is true is that Hollywood is very politicized. Like the during the McCarthy era, right? Getting blacklisted. If you were a, a producer or an actor, if you were in the movie business and you had socialist leanings, you could end up blacklisted and then you were never allowed to work again. So like a lot of people lost their careers because of the larger climate, political climate, anti-communist climate. But that's not a good thing. We shouldn't want that. And what's happening right now is the Chinese version of that, and except like in reverse. And so if you want to make a movie that portrays geopolitical rivalry with China or that sheds, shines a light on human atrocities in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs or that hypothesizes a counterfactual future where like China invades Taiwan, you cannot, it's not even possible to write a script and get it sold uh, for something like that in the current climate. And like, that was what Judd Apatow was talking about with China. We should want Hollywood to generate its own content based on what it sees, what it wants to do creatively. You know, there's a little bit of like, not a little bit, there's a lot of what aboutism in this question, which is like logically problematic, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. So uh, question two comes from Twitter. Zachary Tyson Brown asks, how important is a literary agent when you want to write a book? Yeah, so I thought this was worth bringing in um, as a question for AMA. There's this idea that like, if you want to write a book and it's your first book, I mean, certainly you probably don't know how to go about it or you're not sure. Having a literary agent to promote and sell your manuscript is and to approach publishers is something that like you presumably would need. It's not necessarily true. Having a literary agent is boss fucking money. That's great. I would love to have one if I, you know, could get one, I guess, or if I never tried to get one, but like, you know, it would be nice to have one because they can approach certain publishers and trade presses that uh, maybe you can't approach yourself. One of the things that's true about trade presses, trade being commercial, non-academic presses, is that uh, a lot of them don't take cold submissions or there's no way, there's no like portal or email where you can just like get in touch with somebody at a publishing house. But there are places where you can. 
they're in for academic publishing in particular, it's almost all like academic publishers almost never rely on literary agencies. They take all their submissions directly. The answer to the literary agent question depends on what your goal is. Do you want to publish with with Random House or uh, Penguin Press? Right. These are the bookstore. These are the publishers who publish books that are on the shelf at airports. Right. In that case, you actually do need a literary agent. So you should be approaching them, pitching, pitching your idea or your manuscript, your proposal. And if you're a first time author, the more you have written, the more likely it is that you're going to have a literary agent be interested in representing you. If you just have an idea but you haven't written anything about the idea, an agent's not going to take you seriously, man. If you have a proposal and the idea in the proposal is really good, then the agent, it, it depends on the fit of the agent, how much they want to bet on you, you know? Like, do they think they can sell this? That's the question that the agent has for themselves. Can they sell this to a publisher? Is it worth their time? And the more of the product you have written, the more persuasive it is. If you have a great proposal, but you have no track record of writing books, then it's like, well, the agent would be taking a gamble on you because you're not a proven commodity. And so if you have the whole manuscript written, then the product stands for itself. You can, an agent can see it and be like, this will sell and it's done. It's an asset in hand. If you have a decent manuscript that's fully written, you'll probably find an agent. If you're trying to get it on spec, which is to say like uh, as an advance before you've written it, that's harder, right? And if it's your first book, especially, it's going to be super hard. But I will say what my, or the reason why I wanted to talk about this was like, you do not have to wait on having an agent in order to write a book. And the more of the book that you write before approaching an agent, the more likely you're going to have success finding an agent. And you don't need an agent at all. Ultimately, uh, it depends on where you're trying to publish. And so I've published all of my books so far and the ones that I have under contract currently. It's all direct contact with the editors at specific publishing houses. They're academic publishers because that's what I need professionally, but that's, I mean, like that is doable. It's feasible. I think one of the best parts of the interview you did um, a couple weeks ago was, uh, you know, be prepared for rejection. Cause I can imagine mm. that's a pretty common occurrence if you are selling your own book oh, yeah. or trying to market your own book. Like I can imagine rejection is something you'd get quite often, regardless of the merits of the book, you know? There are so many stories about successful authors who shopped their manuscripts around and got rejected literally 20 times, couldn't find an agent until finally one said yes. And it only takes one, you know, funny thing about academia, but like writing in general is like, you're only known for your successes. The failures or the rejections are something that's only to you. You that's, you're the only one who has knowledge of that. Getting the wins on the board, it just takes one. It just takes one. One person has to say yes, and then all the rejection doesn't matter, you know? So, you know, I don't know. Keep trying. Third question for AMA is actually to you guys. James Palmer, buddy, uh, editor at Foreign Policy, he asked a question on Twitter that uh, I felt like it was worth posing to you. He says, Zoomer slash Young Millennials, 
Do you feel that social media has distorted your sense of what is normal in terms of your own achievements? Uh, I see very talented friends getting ground down by the belief that everyone is more successful, happier, et cetera, than they are. Answer? Thoughts? I mean, I think the use of social media is meant to be like this indicator for success. Like how many likes you get on Instagram, who's like following you on Twitter, how many views you get for your TikTok. Mm. Like I don't have like a massive following. So like maybe, and this might just be me. So I'm not particularly fussed about things. But I do think in like an age of influencers and the need to network, it just inherently ends up having to matter, if that makes sense. Yeah. I I mean, I think, I think my view of reality has been shaped more by Twitter than by Instagram. So like my, my social reality, I'm, I'm pretty confident in the knowledge that Instagram is fake uh, and shows like yep. the best <laughs> snippets of the world around me, right? Like I'm, I'm relatively sure. calm about that. Yeah. So I don't, you know, that, that hasn't been too much of an impact. But I think Twitter has definitely affected how I think about the world, right? Like it's really interesting going from the like Wellington Twitter law school foreign affairs bubble <laughs> and then like going to Wayudu and training for a while there with like builders apprentices and plumbers and lawyers and randoms from all across the country and you're like oh right okay this is the real world right no, nobody thinks the way people do in yeah. Wellington it's so interesting seeing that difference I'm generalizing here and I'm just using kind of my experiences so feel free to jump in guys but I do find comparatively even on like a kind of a global scale for example I find a lot of people in New Zealand are more chill so the classic like you know that's cool Kiwi attitude about things versus for example when I went to the US I was only there for six months right but the culture was so competitive and so cutthroat Everyone was just constantly piling, oh, I'm doing this and that, you know, I'm taking all these classes while doing these sports, while doing these clubs and upping their like, you know, like for their CVs or their LinkedIn or whatever. And I think like that makes a difference. And then you hop over to like the Asian sphere of things, right? And it's like, I mean, we've already been getting compared since we were kids. And then you throw social media on top of that. I mean, can be a lot of pressure depending where you're from. That's like, a really good point. People should it's... come to New Zealand. Like it's like a... <laughs> I, I think like the what James mentioned, um, I don't think you can really have a successful social media without some perverse sense of competition. And I mean, I, I personally consider myself rather self-aware on the issue. Like, like Pete said, you know, like I know that my Instagram following is not a measure of me as a person, but yet I can't help but get some sort of narc- narcissistic glee when I get a follow on Twitter from someone that okay. I've never met before or like a, a like on Instagram or a comment on Facebook. Like I can't help but feel good about myself. Yeah, right. And even though I know it means nothing. So I think it's a lot more malicious in that way. Um, it really does play on our emotions. So I think it's, it's just built into the concept of social media itself. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, I guess I just think that it's all just kind of fake, like, you, people flex on social media so there's no point putting too, too much stock in it like yeah, yeah classic human attitude <laughs> yeah um, yeah i mean everyone else has said it better than i have but yeah <laughs> okay well that's good it sounds like they're not reward system in social media is definitely distorted and like it can definitely warp your perception of reality i don't think that that's distinct to being fucking 
Gen Z. I'm elder millennial and like I feel the same way about it all. That's that I mean the the genesis of the stay off Twitter segment was that like I hated Twitter so much because it's the fucking crack rock because it's the <laughs> it, it it just you want that dopamine hit and it gives you that every 5 seconds if you're compelled to tweet or like something or check in to see notifications and that's like a very perverted system. It, and for me, like, you know, I do a lot. I produce a lot. But like I do see all of the accomplishments of like the people I'm connected to. And I'm connected to a bunch of people who are like extremely accomplished. And so when my friend fucking Mira publishes two books in one year, it has made me sign two contracts for books at the same time, which is like an Im immense undertaking um, and it's pretty stressful, but it doesn't feel like it's even necessarily enough because I know people who I'm seeing on social media who are basically doing the same thing. And so like, I almost, I mean, based on your guys' responses, I almost feel like the James Palmer question applies more to like me and the elder millennials than it does to you guys. You guys seem to be like, Pretty and QA on things started on Facebook and it's not run by Zoomers. You know, like I think a lot of the older generation, older than you, Van, what we would call boomers, I guess, place so much stock in the internet. Whereas we've sort of, in a way, we were sort of the generation that didn't exactly grow up with it, but grew into it. And we recognize its faults, but yeah, it seems point. like the boomer generation is coming a bit late. And that's why you get shit like QAnon and all these weird hashtags filled with like mega people because they place so much stock in this. And Donald Trump, perfect example. How much stock does he place in his stupid Twitter feed and how many shares yeah. he gets? It's reality know? to him in a way that yeah. it almost seems like it's not to you guys. All right. <laughs> all right, gang, that's going to do it buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us coffees, which is code for money. And uh, if you want to rate us on iTunes or whatever, <laughs> where, <laughs> wherever you're listening, that would be great too. Five stars, obviously. All right, guys, next time. Peace. <laughs>